So not a fan of the, the traffic, or, or what is it about Griffin, aside from your wife, that uh, wants you to uh, be a local resident? I do very much enjoy the uh, you know, being close enough to Atlanta to get somewhere in a hurry, but have the small town feel and the, uh, the sense of community that uh, I did not have as I was uh, growing up in, uh, in the Atlanta area. So uh, that, that has a lot to do with it. I'm fairly active here in town. Uh, I work with uh, Camelot Theater Group as a, a kind of a technical person. I serve on the United Way uh, Executive Committee as the Allocations Chair currently. So I've got a few things going on in town here that, uh, that keep me connected and, and enjoying it very much. Well, now, Mr. Taylor, let's, let's get a little bit about you, your role on campus. You know, I know you matriculated there at the University of Georgia Griffin campus and also got your master's degree there over a 10-year period. What is it that's kept you on campus? Um, I was fortunate enough to come upon a really good opportunity as far as progressing and um, being able to kind of help my IT skills. Uh, coming out of undergrad, uh, there was a position full-time open for um, uh, an IT professional here. So I jumped into that, um, which eventually led to IT manager and luckily being an employee there's you know the benefit of being able to have uh, the matching degree paid for and it's just it's really a family and kind of community here um really get to know everyone you get those students and all so it's just it's a really neat feeling just to have that sense of community around you okay lee we had a little bit of an issue earlier i'm hearing you just fine through the headphones now but i think um but let's just get back to now lee your parents here own wkeu did that help foster a love of information technology for you? Uh, it definitely didn't hurt. It gave me some uh, some experience I didn't realize I was getting at the time. Um, <laughs> just kind of being a little more technical savvy than some of the rest of the family. Um, you kind of get leaned on for things like that. So I think without even realizing that I was developing some skills there, um, it definitely benefited me. And especially working with more AV stuff here also, you know, knowing how to work with audio from the radio stations has been really beneficial. Well, now, do you, you both work in different departments. How do your jobs differ? I mean, you both are specialized in information technology, but how do your roles there on campus differ? I would say our roles, I don't know, our roles necessarily differ. The folks that we service differs more than anything else. Um, we both have our own budgets, uh, though we work, our, our departments work well together. Uh, that is one thing that has been very helpful since I got on campus. Uh, if something's going on and we need an extra set of hands, Lee's folks are happy to jump in and vice versa. So while Lee is uh, the IT manager for academics, which is mostly with the students and the professors that are teaching classes and those types of things, I work for the College of Ag. So specifically, uh, I tend to work with uh, the researchers and going into labs and any, any department on campus that falls under the College of Ag uh, would be more of my primary focus, but Lee and I both look at this campus as our campus, and we work together on that. So there's, there's a little bit of overlap. Uh, there are a couple of occasions where we get a project that we can uh, collaborate on or coordinate so that we both get the best possible uh, solution, and we're not having to come up. We're not, we're not having to reinvent the wheel each time and figure out, is this, this better for you or is this better for me? In some cases, they're completely different solutions, but uh, in a lot of cases, we're able to leverage 
the way that we uh, we work together so we can both get a, a maximum benefit. Well, technology is an ever-changing world, so how difficult is it since you mentioned that you have separate budgets that you have to send in to the campus director and then which goes on to the university system? You know, how do you uh, kind of make adjustments for the changes in technology that happen almost on a monthly basis? Personally, I can tell you, uh, the, like I said, I've been doing IT for 30 years. The only thing that has not changed one time is the plug that plugs in the wall. Everything else is, like you said, it's constantly changing. So I will say this, if someone is thinking about getting into IT, they have to be very accepting of change. Because about every three years, you were, you've learned some new skill, and probably some skill that you had is no longer relevant. Um, I'm starting my master's program this next semester partially to keep my skill sets up partially to keep up with Lee because he's, he's leapfrogging over me in his, uh, in his uh, educational learning. But it, it is definitely a field that you have to be willing to keep up with the times and learn something new. And the nice thing about where Lee and I here on campus, we don't get pigeonholed into one particular uh, area of support. You know, it, it's kind of, I, I look at, you know, a lot of people say, well, you're an IT. And you're like, okay. Well, if you're in IT, you can make an entire living doing nothing but website design, and you don't know how to fix a computer. You can make an entire living doing application building. You don't necessarily know how to manage a network. You might know how to, you know, acquire uh, IT equipment for other folks, but you don't know how any of it runs. So IT really is a very large field, and you can specialize inside of it. But I think one of the things that Lee and I both enjoy about what we're doing here is that there's a few of us that we have to we have to know a little bit about, about everything, and it keeps uh, keeps the job fresh. And there are always opportunities to to learn something new. Well, this question is to both of you: Has the COVID pandemic and the adjustments that you had to make last year are there going to be some lasting effects from that? Things that you didn't realize were going to be beneficial that you're going to hang on to now that you see how efficiently and effectively some of these new things might be working. I would say from the academic side with classrooms, um, that's something that we kind of saw a trend heading that way, but it happened a lot faster because of COVID where um, hybrid teaching, where you have some students online, some in the classroom, or just things fully going online, the adoption rate of that got fast forwarded because of COVID and the, you know, the fact that everybody had to do that. And it really opened a lot of people's eyes to the benefits of that. So from an academic standpoint, it fast-tracks that whole process to where now that's kind of a normal thing and people are much more accepting of it. Now, from the College of Ag standpoint, Doug, how did it change things, particularly when you're trying to help researchers in their projects? Well, that was an interesting uh, dynamic that we ran into because like, researchers have to be, most of the time, if they're running their research, they've got to be physically present. And that was not really possible uh, during the shutdown portion of campus, but uh, I do think some of the, uh, I guess, changes that occurred is folks really did figure out that we don't have to have a meeting to talk about this. Uh, maybe we have a Zoom call. Maybe it is an email. That's one of the jokes I see all the time is, you know, this meeting really could have been handled via a single email. So I think it makes folks a lot more productive. And then with folks working from home, I think what a lot of folks have figured out is people really can be more productive. And some folks 
you know, just because it hits 5 o'clock. I can say when you're here at 5.01, it's pretty quiet on this campus if there's not a class going on. But I know a lot of folks, when they were working from home, you know, I may have seen an email from at 6, 6.30, 7 o'clock, which doesn't happen very often. So I, it, it's a different, uh, I guess, a paradigm shift is what I would call it. Folks were getting their work done just maybe a little bit differently. And for some folks, they were happy about it. And for some folks, they couldn't stand it because you got that social aspect of being able to see your coworkers and interact with folks. Things do get misconstrued in, in an email sometimes. It's, it's been a, a interesting change in uh, what's been going on, some, some positive, some negative. I think some will stick around, and some things happily will, will go away now that the pandemic is waning or hopefully waning. We'll, we'll see as school starts back up if, if we're going to run into uh, some more spikes. Now, through his role in the here at WKEU, Lee Taylor has handled quite a number of, of IT calls from me. Lee, what have I done wrong? Things like that. But, Lee, could you talk, walk us through what a typical IT call from someone on campus is like for you? And then, Doug, we'll see if that differs from your answer. Um, so, for me, we service students and also the faculty and staff for the academic side. So, for people in their offices, our faculty and staff, you know, that can be anything from just you know, something their computer's not starting or they're on an issue printing. For the class side, which is more typical of a call, um, that comes to issues with, you know, maybe they're having an issue getting connected to the class through Zoom or issues with projectors. And, you know, every now and then it'll be some special requests, like if the class is not normally Zoomed and they want to do that or they want to play like a video. And, you know, it's one of those where you kind of have to always be on your toes because you never really know what's going to call. And then, Doug, does that differ from the typical call that you take from on-campus from, from the researchers and other departments? I'm not sure I would call any of them typical. <laughs> but I will say we both have probably a standard first answer when someone says there's a problem. And that first question is, have you tried turning it off and back on? And it's not because we're trying to be silly, but you'd be amazed at how many folks like to let their computer run for literally months without restarting them and it needs to happen every once in a while. Resources start to get low. Programs don't give up the resources that they're running. So we're not, we're not trying to poke fun at anybody when that's the case, but uh, one of my guys ran me a report recently, and according to the report, we had computers on this campus that have been running for over 300 days without restarting, and that's just asking for some trouble. So personally, I restart mine about once a week if I haven't, just as, as you know, good GP. And, uh, but a typical call... I don't know that I would say that we have we have one. I spent yesterday afternoon chasing down uh, fax lines and, and uh, things like that. Uh, we have issues with printers. We have issues with computers. Somebody can't get to a certain website. So they, they, they're all over the board, to be honest with you, Tony, but that's part of what makes the job enjoyable. Well, now nobody works on an island, particularly in a, in a program as extensive as the IT department on the UGA Griffin campus. Tell us about the other members of your respective teams. So for me, um, I have Avery Bray that works with me. Uh, he came up very similar paths that I did. Um, graduated from Pike County High School. Uh, interned here for a summer. Um, went to Gordon and then as he was finishing up there coming to UGA Griffin here in the business program like I did, um, can work full-time with me and he since this past may also finish his master's degree and then 
occasionally from time to time we'll hire on student workers also. Um, we don't currently have one. Um, just with budget cuts, that's not really an option right now. Um, so we've had a handful of student workers come through also that uh, pitch in with us. And then for Doug, the same question, you know, who do you have anybody that, you know, kind of under you that can help maintain what is a massive undertaking? Yes, I, I have uh, uh, I have an assistant as well. His name is Darius Graves. Uh, Darius came over from the school system, fantastic job with customer service, which uh, for IT people, we, don't, we aren't known for our personality. <laughs> I think that uh, myself and Lee and Avery and Darius actually are kind of, we, we break the mold with that. Um, it, because IT people can be uh, thought to be not very social and, and don't have a lot of uh, personal skills, but I think we all do a pretty good job at that. But Darius, definitely I can give him a project and get him to work on some things. He's recently picked up some new skill sets in, in, that would be considered advanced uh, troubleshooting and uh, configuration that he is, he's having a ball with, which I'm glad because I don't have the time to do it. And it just we so our, our focus is really to be as efficient, you know what what piece of software can we get that makes our job easier, but at the same time, I'm not going to spend I'm not going to spend a dollar to save a nickel uh, when it comes to that type of stuff. Though that's one of the things we have to deal with on a daily basis with folks that, that they don't want to spend money, but they don't realize how much money they're wasting or losing in productivity because either they can't replace the piece of equipment or instead of buying a new one. We need to fix the old one, and we spend more to fix the old one than we would have to replace it. We do run into that from time to time. Now, how do you keep up with the latest changes of technology? Is it a collaborative effort among the four of you, or does one of you or two of you specialize in, in trying to keep up to date with the latest changes in technology? I would say that um, we do you know, kind of talk back and forth to make sure that there is some uniformity across the campus. Um, it's a little different with academic stuff um, as far as like in-classroom things. Um, for that, I do a lot of actually looking at what other universities are doing actually. Um, so we've actually gone and kind of toured other universities' rooms. We actually did that just last week and just kind of poking around and seeing how they do things, if there's anything different. Um, a lot of research too. So. Uh, just seeing what products are out there. So, you know, there's typically a set of companies that provide your product. Uh, and you just kind of look and see what's new that they've come out with, what's different about it, um, what the benefits are to see if it fits with your setting. So for one of the things that we've done recently um, was adding all the video conferencing equipment in. So a lot of research went into seeing what's kind of the latest standard, what's coming up as a standard that is really worth going ahead and jumping into because at some point we'll have to do it anyway um, just to be current. So it's a lot of research kind of examining those around you, what others are doing in similar situations and of course you know, Doug and I collaborating with what's best for the campus here. And then what determines what, what is, are there any influencing factors that determine when it's time for a software upgrade or when, hey, these new computers can more efficiently do the job better than what we have now? What are some of the determining factors that, that lead to upgrades on the campus? Well, with regards to, like, the computer you're using on a day-to-day -day basis, I typically, and it, it's kind of become a standard for me, somewhere between the three- to five-year mark, 
is where um, it started. It it it's gotten slower. There's maybe maybe adding some memory to it will fix that problem. Maybe it won't. It depends. But I think Lee and I both, when we're when we're quoting out a piece of equipment, we're looking at how far down the road can I push this? Uh, am I going to have to pay a premium to get that, or can I find something that fits the budget? And we know, like I said, for desktops, I usually run it about three years just because, if nothing else, the technology has changed. The, uh, the type of hard drive that goes in it may be a different uh, connector. The uh, memory, I guarantee, has probably changed. Intel has come out with a ton of new processors since then. So trying to force an old piece of equipment is not necessarily the, the best route. But the other problem that, that Lee and I run into, and this is really hard in IT, is you've got new technology that comes out all the time. The, the question is, am I going to gamble on this technology and this is going to become the standard, or am I going to waste a lot of money on something? And I can tell you in 30 years, I have, I have misstepped on a few things where I thought this is going to be the next big thing, and it turns out it's a flash in the pan and it goes away. The, uh, you think about it. Back in the early 2000s, you didn't buy a computer without a CD-ROM or a DVD drive in it. And I, nowadays, we don't put an optical disc in it at all because everything's gone to a flash drive or it's a download straight over the Internet. So that, that's the fun part of also, and, and he and I will collaborate on some of those things as we read about some new technology. It's like, hey, this is kind of cool. You think this is going to work or it's not going to work or how can we use, use this? And um, in some cases, you're like, that's really neat, but that one's never going to catch on. And But IT will surprise you in quite a few places. I know there are a lot of rich people in IT that had an idea that we thought, there's no way that's going to work. And and they're not working for a state agency at this point. They're making, they're sitting at home making it easy. Well, what are some of the biggest challenges that, that have, or how has your job changed? Doug, I know for you in 30 years, there's an awful lot. I mean, you started probably with DOS or, or maybe even something before that or Linux or something. And, and now, you know, we're, we are, as you say, well past the days of the CD-ROM and the floppy disk. What are some of the biggest changes that you've seen in, in the course of your career? Well, you're right. I, I go back to my, my first job. I think the standard operating system on the computer was DOS 3.3. The uh, maximum partition size for storage was 32 megabytes. So things have changed just a little bit since now I've got, you know, 10 terabyte drives in some of our server storage. So that's a huge, I mean, I, it, there's no way when I first got into it, if someone had said, you're going to be sticking a 10 terabyte device in a computer and wish you had more space, going to be like, you are out of your mind. There's no way. Um, the... I guess the adoption of computers in in literally everything nowadays, that's another thing that I thought might happen, but it's been, the, I guess, the biggest change because it's interesting, some of the pieces of equipment that I work on, that my computer skills helped me solve the problem because it was actually a computer-related problem, not the technology or the piece of equipment that they were actually working on. And so... It's fun when that's the case, but some people then seem to think you know every software program and every uh, product that comes out that they got any technology. As I like to joke with folks, just because it's got a display screen on the copier doesn't mean I know how to fix those when they break. But quite often, when they can't do their scan to email, 
it's a problem with a computer-related side or a network side. It has nothing to do with the copier. So it is nice to see that. And it is interesting how all of those different things, because I guess additionally where computers have, we're involved in every aspect of a business for IT folks. You're in HR. You're in personnel. You're in the business office. We're in, if we're here, we're in teaching and all of those other things. And that is, that's fun, and it's interesting that it's gotten that, that big because it used to be, you know, IT was just a department, and we have our fingers in just about everything at this point. Somebody's going to call you and say, I need to do something, and we thought you needed to be on our committee, which is the bad part. Now we're in a lot more meetings on a regular basis that most of the meeting has nothing to do with this, but it's just in case that technology question comes up because they don't know what what how to answer that question, or can we do it? And we have to tell them, yes, it can be done, or no, it can't be done, or you better have a lot of money if you want to do this, or we're going to need a few more people. Well, do you guys have to have training sessions with the personnel there on staff? I mean, I'm sure that the UGA Griffin campus gets hundreds, if not thousands, of emails every day. Do you have to have training sessions with the other employees and faculty and students about suspicious emails and things of that nature? Yes, we do. We, 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 uh, I hold fairly regular what we call lunch and learns. So they're 30 minutes to an hour, especially when some particular new product has come out that I think would be helpful. Uh, for example, I held one uh, about two weeks ago for Microsoft Teams because our administrative staff that support everybody else on campus, they do a lot of talking, and it's, it's kind of like an internal collaborative social media type of product, I guess you would say, because you can have chats and you can have conversations, you can post files and things like that. So I had a 45-minute class explained what you do with it. But with regarding uh, the suspicious emails and phishing attempts and all that type of stuff, I send out at least a couple times a week. We get them constantly. Uh, I'll send one out and go, hey, if anybody has seen this email, it's bogus. Go ahead and delete it. If you haven't already reported it, uh, Athens actually manages the uh, the system that handles all of our spam and our phishing and stuff like that. I'm like, click the button, go ahead, report it to them so that they can flag that system so nobody else gets it. But I will say the bad guys are getting smarter and smarter. I wish they weren't, but they are, and it keeps us on our toes. And for the average end user, they don't want to be a technology expert. They want to be able to use the computer to get their job done. And so what I try to do with my little emails and with our Lunch and Learns is to boil it down into bite-sized pieces using plain English and not complicated computer terms to help folks understand why they need to be on the lookout for this stuff. Because there, there are a lot of folks who are like, I don't have an important job. Why is somebody trying to get this information? And my response to them usually is you're a stepping stone to a bigger fish, so that's why you need to pay attention as well. Because you're being a guard, you're being the, the the guardian for somebody else. Because once they get into your system and they can learn information about you, then they can use you to get to the next person, and so on and so on. And uh, so that that's kind of a my answer for that. Well, Lee, if you, if you would just for the casual listener who is tuned into our broadcast this morning, could you differentiate between spam and phishing, and how computer users within their own homes or on their phones can recognize? when something might not be on the up and up? So, with luckily with phones, there's a little less risk, but you still need to be careful. Um, 
those are, you know, you're still susceptible there. It's just less likely than if you're on your PC. Um, so you're, and this is really, Doug is a lot more well-versed in explaining the spam and phishing and all the different terms because there's a million different terms for phishing, smishing, which is, te- you know, tech, which is text-based uh, phishing. Um, so there's a lot that goes into that, but, you know, one of the biggest things that I can say that we see that I, you know, I get the emails that Doug sends out. He's very good about sending all those out there. Um, I mean, there's been multiple times where it looked like an email from Dr. Button, our campus director. Um, and, you know, it looks very real. There's been emails come from where they, it looks nearly identical to an EITF email saying something's wrong with your password. I mean, the main thing is, you know, kind of look for the telltale sign. Is the email address that it's coming from, does it end in at and then a whole bunch of random characters instead of at UJ like you'd expect? Um, I mean, there's there's a lot of things to look out for. You just kind of have to kind of be on your toes because it can look very official. Um, but I'll let Doug kind of explain the spam and phishing part a little bit. Yeah, so spam is a, is a generic term for email, and basically spam is any email you didn't ask for that is you know, typically, though, is more of an advertising type of email. So, you know, refinance your mortgage or your car loan, your your, uh, uh, your car warranty is about expired, you know, that type of stuff, that is more spam. So it's an email that you may not have wanted, you didn't ask for, but there's not necessarily anything malicious about it. Phishing is a malicious email. Typically, with a phishing email, there it claims to be one thing, and it's something different. Um, a lot of times there will be some sense of urgency, like you need to do this right now, and it it, it toys with with your emotions, and it makes you think, I've got to take care of this, so you don't think about it. And usually with phishing, they're looking to collect your personal information so that you, you it, it's a monetary thing. Spam is, is the folks hoping you buy something from them, but phishing, somebody's looking to take advantage of your your financial situation. Uh, we got one yesterday that purported to be an IRS, you know, recalculated your refund, and we're going to give you another $1,400 with a link that said click on the link. And if you have your regular email set up where it's nice and pretty, you get all the graphics and all the full color stuff, it looks like it is an official notice from the IRS. But if you have some of those features turned off, and for the average user, I don't recommend it because it doesn't mean a whole lot to them. But when I look at it in my system, I see that this is one not going back to the IRS's website. It's going to some random website from somewhere else. And if you pull it up, all of a sudden it looks like it's the IRS's website. And strangely enough, you've got to enter just enough information to give somebody your identity, but that's the same information that gets used to what you would have to provide the IRS. So these guys have done a lot of research. Um, while while Russia and China get bad raps, uh, there are folks all over the world that are working on this type of stuff, and we have plenty in the U.S. as well that are probably part of that. Uh, I still think that the U.S. is the largest uh, source of phishing emails, but with regards to guys that are around the world, we don't have the law enforcement capabilities to go track those guys down. I kind of wish we did. could make a few examples of some folks. Maybe it would shut down, but it's all money-related. Money that's why they do it. They make a lot of money doing it. But if you get an email that you're not expecting that is urging you to do something immediately or 
Let me put one more out there because we see this all the time. Somebody types in a website address. They think they're going to, say, Microsoft.com, and they mistype Microsoft. Well, the bad guys will register these domains, and they'll put up a fake site that says, you, we've just detected a virus on your computer. You need to call this number right now. Don't ever call that number. Close the browser, open a new browser, retype it. You get the same thing, maybe there's a problem, but you probably didn't fat finger the, the, the address twice and it went right where you're supposed to. But that's one that we get on a regular basis where somebody goes, my computer's infected. And I'm like, all right, what'd you do? And I, well, I opened up my browser and I typed in so-and-so. And I'm like, all right, look at the top and tell me what the address is. And it, is, it has nothing to do with where they were going. So somehow they they mistyped the address and they got rerouted somewhere else. And there's this, early, I mean, it may have sound claxons going off. Going, ah, 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 you need to call us now. There's a problem with your computer. I've heard literal audio and the screen is flashing and it causes people to instantly jerk and dial that number. And the next thing you know, you know, on, on the low side, they're out a couple hundred dollars because somebody sold them a bogus antivirus program. On the worst side, they've given them just given them enough information to steal their identity, and the next thing they know, they're they could be missing thousands of dollars. And then no, after that, real quick for Doug, um, something we uh, we always preach is that if you ever have any concern about something like that that you might be infected, just call your IT department. You know, we don't. We're not going to be mad because you took precautions because the alternative to that is if it actually was something, you know, that could compound into worse things. We've seen multiple times, especially with universities, where there's been leaks from various things of personal information. So there's, there's never a bad time to call and just be precautious. And then another telltale sign is if someone asks to log into your computer using TeamViewer or some similar type of, of software. If you did not call that person first, like, you know, if someone calls you and says, I'm with so-and-so and so-and-so and we found a problem with your computer, doesn't happen, Tony. Nobody, these companies are not sitting around waiting for you to have a problem with your computer to call you and tell you about it. Um, and I, one other thing I will point out with regards to the phishing, because I, I just saw one of these the other day. It was an email claiming, you know, we have hacked into your computer and they will post, this, they'll say, this is your password. Well, there have been so many data leaks that they now, uh, on the dark web, they post information on people. So maybe it's an email, maybe it's a password you used 10 years ago, but they know, they know what it is, and they'll post it and go, here's your email address, here's your password. If you hadn't changed your password, you think they've just hacked your computer. They have not hacked your computer. Ignore it. Go away. Now... You're, you're out on the web doing things you aren't supposed to do, you might infect your computer on something. But for the average user who gets a random email and it says, we, we know what you're doing, we've, we've hacked into your computer, it's bogus. They're trying to, again, get you to knee-jerk react to something, but it, it's not the case. Now, when you guys have budget meetings and, and things like that with the uh, officials at the University of Georgia on the Athens campus, are you can you do that by teleconferencing, or are you still big fans of, of doing it in person to gauge better gauge reactions to your proposals? Really, most of our budgeting is done here locally. So um, you do it on the Griffin campus? On the Griffin campus. I, my budget, personally, is part of the, the Griffin B budget. So it goes to Dr. Bunton, it gets approved, and it's part of the overall campus budget. I know Lee has a couple of 
vehicles where he can get funds that do go directly to Athens, but we don't really have to travel up there to do that, um, to, to meet with those. Most of those could, if they need to be a meeting, can be a Zoom meeting now. The pandemic has proven that one. Um, just before the pandemic, I was involved in a committee that was meeting every month, and I was having to drive to Athens uh, just to participate in a one- or two-hour meeting, which was not very efficient. And so I'm hoping that the pandemic has, has shown that that doesn't necessarily have to happen. Um, but I know that Dr. Button makes regular trips to Athens. So there are various things. Sometimes it's, it's a physical visit, and other times it's a, uh, an online visit. Well, one thing about technology is eventually it is going to fail. On the UGA Griffin campus, what happens in that event? Um, I would say that one thing that we all become very good at is improvising. Um, so when something does fail, if it's at a critical moment, we usually can improvise pretty well. We recently had two projectors actually go down. And, you know, projectors isn't one of those things where we go around every classroom every day and test out. So we don't really know until someone's trying to use the room that the projector's dead. So that happened about two weeks ago with the class that he's used the computer lab. And, you know, before we realized the projector's dead, they're all students in the classroom. So we improvise. Um, you know, we typically have spares or something like that. It might not be the full-size projector that's up mounted, you know, mounted to the ceiling, but it's something that we can work around to at least make it so that there's still something being projected. might not be as bright, but it'll pass for the class. So I would say that uh, improvising and, you know, always keeping, you know, some technology on hand. When we life cycle stuff out, we don't necessarily send it all to surplus and be done with it. We keep some on hand just in case something like that were to come up where we need that piece of equipment to fulfill a need. Do things get automatically backed up, or is each user responsible for backing up their own data? Well, I can say for the College of Ag, we have recently in the past, uh, actually, I think it was just for the pandemic, we, we, the College of Ag now pays for software backup licensing for everyone's computer. And we have that installed on most of the computers, and it backs up automatically every 15 minutes. We have had to use it before. So we have some folks that are that are good, and they'll back things up to their, you know, to a local flash drive or a hard drive. But uh, the product that we have that runs in the background, we get if it goes more than about eight days, because sometimes folks go on vacation for a week, we don't want to see it every day. But if it goes eight days without a backup, then we'll get a notification. The user usually gets a notification, and then we'll reach out to them to try and figure out is is this a problem? Is it not a problem? And uh, it has it has saved our bacon on more than one occasion. And it's made, actually it's made life a lot easier. Like when the new computer comes in, we can, uh, as long as their, their current computer is backed up, we can have the new computer in our office restore all of their data and then basically walk in with the new computer and we don't have to go through a big data transfer process. So that's actually been very helpful for us. But I also feel a lot better that we have this product in place. I will tell you that uh, three weeks after I got here, we had an incident and... Um, 20 years of research was lost. Oh, no. no yeah, that, that's a bad thing. Um, luckily, through a lot of effort, uh, the vast majority of that information was recovered. Um, but I don't ever want to have to try worry about that again. And that is the one area of my position that does keep me up at night, both through ransomware, because somebody clicked on a link, and all of a sudden they walk in and their computer's infected. I, when Before I got here and, and when I was self-employed, 
I had more than one computer that I had to deal with with ransomware, and it's like, okay, you're you're backing this stuff up, and they're like, no, and I'm like, you're in a world of hurt, then. Well, and, well, but, you mentioned ransomware, Doug, and uh, it, that's not necessarily, and as you just pointed out, it's it's not a new thing. I mean, it's gotten a lot of attention in the media, like in May when the Colonial Pipeline was hacked, and then the nation's largest meat provider. It it was held by ransomware. Is there a way to avoid that, as or do do you on campus have to take? particular precautions because some of the research that's being done there on the UGA Griffin campus is so sensitive? Well, in some cases, you may do what's called air gapping the, the, the computer. In other words, it's not connected to a network. So if that's the case, then we have to make sure we have other backup routines in place for making sure that data and that research are not lost. Um, with the fact that we do have our each individual computer is backed up along with our servers and, and, and such. If a computer were to get infected with ransomware, we could restore from our backups and theoretically our back the company that handles the backups, because of the way they do their backups, it's not possible for the ransomware to spread through the backup. And I could talk about that for an hour by itself, so we won't get into the details of that, but there are ways to do your backups so that you can safely restore and back up. So even if your computer was infected and that infected ransomware virus, the, that data got into your backup, the way we're going, we could still restore and, and be fine because we just go before the in infection had occurred. But um, it is, it is, that is one of the things that concerns me, and it's why we spend a fair amount of time trying to educate our customers because our, our, our folks here on campus because the fishing is a big deal yeah it's a monetary deal but that that fishing could also lead to some type of ransomware infection and so once one computer gets infected uh, it can then possibly find a network share that network share is infected then everybody connected to the network share so it just it just runs rampant through the network I don't ever want to have to deal with that uh, I got involved in, in a county system years and years ago that similar they had a virus and that Simply what it did is it just ran all over the network, and every time one area got got cleaned up, somebody else would connect, and it would reinfect it again, and it was like a dog chasing its tail there for a little bit. So hopefully we don't have to do that. We do try to educate our users. So when that special, that that suspicious email shows up, or if you find a, a flash drive laying on the ground that says payroll, don't stick it in your computer. That's a bad thing. Um, so we we. And, and I, as I've also said, I'd rather get 100 people send me an email going, is this bogus? And I go, nope, that one's real. You, you're safe to click on that. Then have one person who thinks, oh, I know this, and it's safe, and they click on it, and then they turn around and infect the entire network. Now, speaking of the network, Lee, when it comes to the academic side, is the University of Georgia Griffin campus its own separate entity when it comes to the academic servers and the IT department, or is it tied in with the other campuses, the main campus in Athens and perhaps the Tifton or the Gwinnett campuses? So we work with those groups somewhat regularly, but for the most part, we are our own separate group. So our IT group isn't necessarily affiliated. We actually fall up under the Griffin campus director. So we are separate from those like the Tiffin campus falls under the College of Ag. Um, you know, Athens just has each college has their own. Uh, we're kind of unique in that we are an IT group that supports five colleges. Um, so we're kind of unique in that, but we don't necessarily fall under any of those. We're academic programs. Um, 
as far as our servers and everything, all the servers that Doug and I both run are our own. So they don't necessarily fall under Athens. Uh, I mean, we connect through an Athens network, so everything from the campus here typically runs through Athens also. Um, but for the most part, we are completely separate, but we do a lot of collaboration between campuses. How much trial and error goes into what it is that you do, particularly when you, you mentioned that there are times where improvisation is required? You know, so how much trial and error you know, goes into your job, maybe not on a daily basis, but perhaps per semester? I would say that we do a, a lot, honestly. And that's one thing that I've always said is that trial and error is how I learned half of what I know. I mean, I didn't just know this. I learned by picking it up, playing with it, trying to figure out what it takes to make it work. So that's, to me, that's a really important skill in IT is don't be scared of the trial and error. Just jump in. Um, because that's really how you're going to learn, because not everything has a Google solution. So I can't just Google every single problem. You know, I kind of have to have some idea of, like, just where I can jump in and start playing with things. Um, We we ran into that when we first adopted Zoom. So that was back before we went to our current setup. We had these older Tamworth systems, and they weren't really designed necessarily to be used with Zoom. And since Zoom, the company, didn't really have a lot of experience with it either, it was a lot of calls back and forth and trial and error to figure out what would make Zoom work with that system. And ultimately, we found that out. I mean, it's, it's a constant thing for trial and error. I mean, that's the thing, too. When we go to someone's office, we don't necessarily always have the answer. A lot of times, it is trial and error, and that's just one thing that it's a skill set in itself. And Well, I would suspect it requires an awful lot of patience and fortitude, but I can give you an example just working with Lee here at the station on some IT stuff. One of the best pieces of advice he ever gave me was, there is very little that you can do to this computer that cannot be undone, so don't be afraid to experiment if there is a problem. That's correct, and, and, and I, as, with regards to the trial and error, you try not to do that in the, in the production systems, so... You, 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 hopefully you've got a test environment where you can kind of try it out first. Now, on the fly, something doesn't work. You may have to put something in place. But uh, you, hopefully you've got some test environment, and we, we try to keep those in place as well. And then, as I have told folks in the past, not necessarily here, just because it ran one time doesn't mean you can now dis- distribute it to 300 people and expect it to work. We need a few more trials. Uh, before we get to where we're going to roll it out to everybody. But once we've done a fair amount of testing and feel comfortable with it, you know, I'm rarely do we push it out to the rest of the campus and we have a problem because we have done that, that testing and that trial and error before we uh, just decide, ah, but this, this is not a big deal. Let's just, let's just do it. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about, if you would, the guest Wi-Fi services that are available on the University of Georgia Griffin campus. Technically, we have two guest Wi-Fi services now. Um, for a long time, if you came on campus, you'd have to reach out to Lee's department or my department. We would have to call Athens. We would get you an account created, which sometimes went real quick and sometimes did not go quick. But with some of our upgrades, we were able to implement a guest Wi-Fi system that basically segmented off our guest network from the rest of our production network. So if you're on our guest Wi-Fi network, you can't see our servers. You can't see any of our student computers. You can't see any of our staff computers. It only will let you get to the Internet. And the reason I did that was because it was cumbersome for us to be able to supply. And, of course, we had been hearing 
for a long time, Athens is going to roll out a visitor network. And we're like, okay, okay. Well, we had the opportunity to put ours in place. And if we hadn't, we'd probably still be waiting on the Athens network. But as it was six months after we implemented the UGA guest Wi-Fi network, they rolled out the UGA visitor Wi-Fi network. So there are technically two guest networks on the Griffin campus. Either one of them will work fine. Both of them are segmented, so you cannot get to any of the university's equipment, but you can hop on and you're able to surf the uh, the web if you need to check your email. You know, you come out and have lunch at, at the cafe. You can have, you know, you're not having to use all your cellular data. You just connect to either the UGA guest Wi-Fi or UGA visitor Wi-Fi, and uh, you should be good to go. We don't relegate you down to some really, really low speed so that you don't want to be there very long. <laughs> well, what, is this going to be particularly beneficial or even more beneficial once more activities resume in the post-pandemic era? Oh, definitely. I mean, we saw that we had the Griffith Spalding County School System on campus, and, I mean, that was, I think they had a group of 150 that were all different breakout sessions. So, I mean, that group in itself, you know, every teacher has their own laptop now. So, uh, to let them know that we have guest Wi-Fi if anybody needs it. So whenever they go into their breakout sessions, they can set all their computers. Nobody has any issues. So we already can reap the benefits of it now, um, and I'm sure it'll continue as we get more back to normal, God willing. Well, leave but, but go ahead. In the pre- in the previous way that we would have done it, we would have been pulling our hair out to get 150 people access to the guest Wi-Fi network. And this way, it was basically it wasn't even a blip on the radar screen for us. Well, now, Lee, one of your responsibilities on campus is you film and record graduation. What are the challenges in, in that undertaking? Uh, that is a constant challenge because I've never, I was never really trained in that. Uh, that was a lot of YouTube education. Uh, and, I you know, it turned out very well, but it's a big undertaking. It's, I mean, it's usually at least a day. Usually we try to get in there two or three days early to start setting up everything, running our cables. Um, but that's one of those that, uh, not, doesn't necessarily typically fall under IT. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of YouTube to make that happen and figuring out what equipment works, how to make it work. And that was one of those where I didn't even mention it to anyone until I was sure that we could pull it off. And then, you know, where did the idea originate to implement drone technology in graduation ceremonies and, and other events that you filmed on campus? Right. The drone isn't necessarily as much used for, um, graduation as it is for other like promo type videos and we used it recently for a campus tour just kind of flying through and showing everything it's just it gives people a better perspective of the campus overall because it's one thing to kind of just like you know show the front of a building or you know say yeah this is the student learning center you know you just turn to the campus take right at the stop sign you can't miss it but to actually give someone like a visual idea of like what it will look like it it takes away some of i guess the fear of coming somewhere that you don't really know um, and, you know, Doug recently also made a 360-degree camera tour of the campus. So, you know, you can kind of get familiar with your surroundings before you really come somewhere. So if you're a student that's never been here before or, you know, a prospective student even, it gives you some idea of kind of what you're walking into. Well, speaking of prospective students, you know, what is the field of information technology like at this point for someone who may be looking in that direction for a career? Is this a field that is going to continue to burgeon, or have we reached a plateau? It's constantly changing, so I think there will always be opportunities in the field of IT. 
sadly there aren't a lot of opportunities on this particular campus we do not have any information technology uh, resources uh, I will say I do serve on the uh, uh, steering committee for Southern Crescent IT programs I get to be with them twice a year and they have some very excellent programs as well so if someone is interested in their local uh, sadly we can't offer that but Southern Crescent has some fantastic ones but the field itself it's going to constantly mutate and grow and expand. And so I think there are definitely for folks that want to get into it. Uh, I think Lee is, is in a similar boat that I am. I get paid to have a hobby. Uh, I get to do learn new things and play with technology. But so the, the, the thing that is the source of frustration for many people is where I find my joy. Uh, I get to play with all kinds of stuff I would never get the opportunity to mess around with. And I'm a problem solver, and IT is definitely something where you get to show somebody a way to do their job maybe a little simpler or much more efficient. And that, that's, I can't tell you what that gives me internally as a payoff, even if the paycheck isn't quite what I would like it to be if I were in the private sector. There are other reasons for, for being here. Well, let me ask this. Being a sports director, there is I found a long time ago that there is a, a tremendous difference between wanting to watch a sporting event and having to. Do you find the same in your career? You, you mentioned that you get a career, Doug, where you get to perform a hobby for a job. But does that make you a little more resistant to using a computer at home, or is this a full-time thing for you at home and on the job? I think my wife wishes that it were not a full-time thing for me because I, I can't. I can literally spend eight or ten hours here working on people's computers and go home, and I could spend additional hours working on stuff. Whether for me, it's updating our church's website, or it's you know a family member whose internet is not working, or they're having a problem with their computer, or a buddy who calls and says, "Hey, can you help me with this?" I, I really do that. that the question my wife hates more than anything else on Sunday morning is, can I ask you a quick computer question? And she's like, nope, and rushes me out the door. <laughs> <laughs> no, speaking of websites, the UGA Griffin campus, and I say this all the time, is, is probably the most easily navigable website I have ever been on. Is that something that you two guys are responsible for, or is that it's an entity all unto its own? I'm going to give that credit to someone, a young lady who used to work for me. Meredith Reeves built the website from scratch. I maintain the majority of it, but I do not claim, I, I don't take credit for the ability to get around on it. She did a fantastic job of laying it out and making sure the information was easily found. And so uh, I credit Meredith, and that's what her field of study was. She was a website developer, and that's what she enjoyed. Uh, she has since gone to Athens to work for the Small Business Development Center doing their, their web development and stuff like that. But she made it possible for me to be able to do what I'm doing and the day that we have to rewrite that website and re-roll it out, I don't look forward to it because that is definitely not my forte, though I will do it as part of my job. Is the Griffin Campus calendar accessible through the website? It is. If you, um, one, we have a, if you go to the website on the front page on the left-hand side, it's kind of an importance date calendar. But if you look at the very top of the page, there will be a calendar link and that is kind of our, that's our public facing calendar. So we actually have multiple views of our calendar. So if we're having a, an on-campus event that's not necessarily open to the public, you won't see that on the, on the public facing calendar. But 
what I try to do uh, whenever a an event is a registration or what do we call it, a campus campus reservation gets created. Lee does a lot of those in the system. Then I get an email, and then I'll go into our campus calendar and make sure that the building that it's in is listed there, the hours that it's supposed to occur is listed there, who the contact person is for that event, and all of that is viewable. And then we have them, I guess they're kind of color-coordinated as to whether maybe it's an external entity that's doing it, if it's a university event that's going on, if it's something that maybe is focused on extension or if it's something that's focused on uh, whatever, then you can you can typically find those types of things. But, yes, that calendar is definitely accessible from the website. I believe it's griffin.uga.edu forward slash calendar. will take you directly to that page. Well, Lee, being with instructional technology, are classroom sessions archived upon request? Are they all archived, or is that just something that, that we don't have the space for? Um, so it, we can offer that. Um, typically, it's one thing that, you know, everybody's favorite word in the past year, Zoom, has offered us, is that it has recording capabilities. And through some of the work that people in Athens did, now anytime a professor does a class through Zoom, if they have it set to record, it'll actually automatically upload to their ELC platform, which is, some people notice Blackboard or Collaborate. But basically, it's the online classroom section um that's all automated so a lot of that happens automatically whether it gets used or not and and is that something that professors are finding if 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 for no other reason just to see how they're handling the adjustment to entirely virtual learning um it really comes it each professor kind of has their own methodology on that some worry that the students are going to not come to class or not pay attention as much because they can go back and watch the recording so they don't want to make it available some of them wholeheartedly put it out there so the students can go back and review anything. Um, so I think that it's, there's a lot of benefits to it. I mean, if anytime the student you know, has to miss class, that's a huge benefit for us that we can provide that um, recording anytime that it's needed. Um, so for review purposes, I, you know, it's always there and available if it's needed or if the professor is on board with that. Well, with the two or three minutes we have left, do you, do you gentlemen, Doug Stewart and Lee Taylor, the information technology leaders on the University of Georgia Griffin campus, do you have any final thoughts or, or what the future looks like for the IT department on the UGA Griffin campus? Uh, ever-changing. <laughs> I think it's just ever-changing. It's, it's one of the things where I think we both love what we get to do and what we get to service, you know, my passion has always been working with the students here. Um, I just feel I'm really thankful that I get that opportunity every day. And just, you know, like Doug said, it's not, it's not necessarily ever coming to work because I love what I get to do, who I get to interact with, and knowing what I get to provide for the students here. Similar situation for me. Um, we keep moving forward. We, keep the, we have the opportunity to learn something new. Our jobs do not get stale. Uh, we have a great collection of staff and faculty and students the diversity that we have culturally is amazing i love that factor of my job as much i love hearing people's stories and how they how they got from wherever they were to griffin georgia because that just blows my mind that someone you know they, they found our little town from nepal or pakistan or spain or wherever they came from 
And uh, that, is, that is a very interesting part of our job, that being able to uh, provide folks the ability to communicate back home in some cases, to get their studies done, and we, are, we help provide that vehicle. That's very satisfying as well. Well, Lee, before I let you get away, just real quickly, what sorts of classes or what sorts of, of academic path would you recommend for someone interested in going into this field? Um, if you're looking, the most typical thing that you really see with IT jobs is computer science. A lot of times you'll see computer science as a preferred degree. Um, Doug mentioned on the class of the Southern Crescent, there's a lot of classes over there that are technology-related. Um, me personally, and I think Doug even went business for our undergrads, um, and, you know, that does provide, you know, as far as managing the budget and all that, it's proven beneficial there. So, I mean, there is an educational path that's more standard with, like, computer science or CIS degrees. Um, I don't think either one of us really followed that, so you're not necessarily locked into doing that, but there are benefits as far as your educational background coming into something like this. And, Tony, I'll say one thing as well. IT is one of those fields that if you have a marketable skill and maybe maybe you go get a certification in a particular field, the sky's the limit. You can make a lot of money in IT working with the right company. And the, the biggest thing is you have to be willing to continue to learn and not think, okay, I've learned this and I'm not going to have to learn any new skills in the next 20 years because you won't have that job. But at the same time, I know plenty of guys in IT that are making six figures that do not have an advanced degree and they love what they do. So, you know, it, it's one of those fields that if you can get in and you have a skill set, you can still make good money. The education is going to help you advance if you want to advance up into management. But if you want to stay on the technical side, making good money, that is still possible in IT without necessarily having to go through an official education process, or you go through a couple of certifications and get you some of those so you understand the basics and then get into IT. If you're good, you're going to advance. Well, I want to thank you both gentlemen, Doug Stewart, the IT Senior Manager on the UGA Griffin Campus, and Lee Taylor, IT Manager of Instructional Technology. I appreciate you both enlightening us on the IT department on the UGA Griffin Campus and letting us know the difference between spam and phishing for our own home computers. Thank you very much for your time, and we look forward to having you both on the program again in the very near future. Thanks for joining us for today's program of UGA Griffin Campus News. Listen each Thursday morning at 9 for UGA Griffin Campus News on WKU AM 1450, 102.3 FM, and The Rock 88.9 FM, and streamed live on the WKURadio.com website. Today's program was made possible by Frank and Carolyn Harris of Round Oak Resources Tree Farm and Murray and Company Realtors. <laughs>